Well, good morning. It is so good to see you folks. Let's take care of a few housekeeping uh, chores, if you don't mind. As you came in, you should have received the bulletin, but also there was this thick packet, all right? So did anyone uh, that wanted one not receive one of these thick packets? If you don't have it, the sermon's longer, actually. So if you got one, it's a really short sermon. Does everybody have one? Yeah? You say, what do you mean by short? I've told the staff, to, uh, just reminded them that give me the cutoff signal around 1.30, all right, that's what we're doing. So well, I hope you have one of those. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We are walking through, if this is your first time with us or first time with us in a while, uh, we're walking through the final days of Jesus on this earth. We would not say the final days of his life because, as we just sang, he's still alive. So uh, we are walking through what happened to him uh, the last days of the Passion Week. And so as we, uh, we will look at that, we're going to begin in John chapter 18 and uh, talk a little bit about that. I've got a list of things that uh, I'm supposed to do and a list of things that I've not done. This is one of the things that I've not done, so if you don't mind, as you're turning there, I'd like to take care of this. I uh, should have done this last week. Uh, I received an email from Mr. Warren. Mr. Warren was the gentleman that was here with us um, uh, on behalf of, uh, uh, who was he with? I've gone blank here. Gideons, thank you so much. I'm looking right at it. Can't read it. Um, but Mr. Warren uh, sent us an email uh, that day. If you didn't receive that word, it is in your bulletin this morning. But uh, our church, we gave, we have worked into our budget, a $500 gift to the Gideons. Uh, and then they stood at the back door and they took up another $395 on top of that from your generosity. Uh, so thank you for that. That's $895. I wanted to share this with you, though. Uh, Mr. Warren says this, um, and, and I, I just I love the impact uh, of what our church is able to do through the cooperation with the Gideons. Uh, those funds, the $895, will purchase 758 testaments or 179 full Bibles. Uh, the Gideons are told that a Bible in a hotel has a life of expectancy of five years. And that gives it the possibility of touching 2,300 lives. So that means that the offering that uh, Friendship gave um, uh, was able to buy 179 Bibles. Uh, that would possibly reach 411,700 people in a hotel. So uh, we just praise the Lord for the work of the Gideons. And, uh, and I want to say to you, thank you for your generosity in supporting an organization that advances the gospel in an intentional way like that. So uh, that is uh, from the Gideons. We also do I want to say uh, congratulations, even though they, they can't hear us. They, they will feel, uh, I know, your love and support. But to Garrett Coker, Garrett and Emily Coker, uh, as of yesterday. So they were uh, married yesterday, and we uh, rejoice with the Coker family and the great plans that God has for Garrett and Emily. Uh, you're in John chapter 18. Uh, when I was uh, around 17 years old, I grew up in Tupelo. And uh, if y'all are familiar with Tallinis, it's always best to start a long sermon with a reference to food. Tallinis, all right? Tallinis, for those of you who are uh, much younger than me, used to be Burger King. Let that soak in. But Tallinis, who remembers when in Tupelo, Tallinis was Burger King? Anybody know what I'm talking about? He said, we never leave Pontotoc. That's okay. All right, some of y'all remember that. Uh, when I was around 17 years old, uh, I was at Tupelo High School and uh, getting uh, close to wrapping that up. Me and a friend of mine, Chris, we were uh, driving down through, and we used to do pork chop, what they call kick a loop. Did you ever kick a loop in Troy? 
So we used to kick a loop, and Brother Charles, what kick a loop means is this, is on Friday night, we would take our parents' gas money, we would put it in the car that our parents bought for us, and then we would just drive around until all that gas was gone, all right? And we would drive around in literally a circle, right? And uh, we would just wave at everybody that we went to school with all week long that we were tired of seeing, and that's what we do on a Friday night. Uh, so Brad, I'll confess to you that I was coming up there by Tallini's and there's a red light that was hanging there right used to be Burger King still the same red light and as I ran as I drove under that red light of course abiding by certain speed limits um, as I came through there some uh, some teenage girl came from what used to be Chipolo High School and she uh, she t-boned me as she was pulling up into Burger King right had to get it her way so she was she was pulling through and she t-boned me and knocked me for a loop and I want to tell you something, that was, uh, I was a young Christian back then, so I got out uh, acting like not a Christian at times, and some of y'all might be related to her, so I won't tell you what she said to me, but, but we had a conversation there for a little bit about basically, hey, why did you hit me, all right? What was weird is that she was the one saying, why did you hit me? And I was the one telling her, no, 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 why did you hit me? And she said, well, why did you hit me? And I remember, I remember driving under that green light. It wasn't a red light, but it was a green light, all right? And I remember it being green. Now, turns out that there were some folks that were in a store across the street, and they happened to be coming out of that store about the time that I was driving under that green light. And when the, uh, what we call the popo arrived, they asked these people, all right? Popo, Brad, that's police is what some people call that. And so uh, they, they asked these people, uh, did y'all witness what took place in this accident? All right? And I don't know how I'd wrong those people in my former life or anything like that, but let me tell you something. Those folks said that that light was a bright red when I went under it, making it a bright green on her side. And some people are just liars. I want to tell you that right up front. I want you to know that. There were also some people having it their way at Burger King that happened to be sitting out there on the little porch they used to have, and they saw it as well, and they told the police that the light was red that I was driving under. I know, Dan. I'm shocked too. And that her light was green as she was pulling in there. So they had an eyewitness from Burger King and an eyewitness from what used to be, was it Payless Shoe Store back in the day? Back in the day, it was. And then there was one other group that was someplace over here where Harvey's is now, but there was something there, and some people there also said, yeah, we saw the guy in the black car, and I think they referred to me as the highway patrolman's son. I don't know why, but they referred to me that way, and they said he ran that red light and caused that accident. It's looking bad for me because it looks like what happened, the way I remembered it, actually was not extremely accurate. But what we did in that situation was we verified exactly the facts, the truth of the situation, by looking at different perspectives of that, what some people would call a crime scene, an accident. All right? When we look in the Gospels, I want you to see this morning, and I get especially excited about this, and so I will try to move through it, all right? But I'm going to try to move through it and contain my excitement. Well, what we see in the Gospels, if you're reading through the Gospels and you're reading through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, each author brings a unique perspective about the life of Jesus. This is how, by the way, we verify the truth of what really happened with Jesus. 
And you say, well, when I read in Matthew, he says one thing, but over here in Mark, he says another, and then in Luke, he says another thing, and then John, he says another thing. And many people, Doc, would tell us this. They would say, well, that means that the Bible's not trustworthy and the Bible's not true. Let me, let me submit this to you. Actually, what's happening is we have four different guys standing in four different positions, and they're viewing the circumstance by their own perspective. And this is a beautiful tool for us, what I want to show you this morning. A beautiful tool for us to see exactly what happened in the life of Jesus. And I want you to see that. And I want you to see that no testimony of Jesus Christ from any of the four Gospels is going to contradict. But instead, it's going to weave together to show us a full picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. So can I tell you, as we get into it, I want you to see in John chapter 18... It won't tell us the full story, but it will tell us John's perspective of the full story. And as we look at that, to this morning, I want to walk you through the sheet first, if you don't mind, and we'll pick out certain texts, all right? We'll pick out certain texts to read, but for the sake of time, I want to walk you through what happened to Jesus. We're going to pick it up right after he was arrested. Now, the one question that you should have and that I definitely bring to this text, and I bring to the text from last week, by the way, too, I'll ask this, why? You know, we've got this. We know that they came to arrest Jesus. You and I, being spiritual folk, we're going to know, hey, they arrested Jesus because he was going to die for our sins. We know that. But if you really drop in there into this actual context, the actual story, here's the question you should ask. Why did they come and arrest Jesus? He had to have committed, we would say, a crime in order to be arrested. Would you agree with that? There has to be some crime committed in order for there to be uh, an arrest, especially, we'll find, an arrest that leads to a condemnation sentence, a sentence of death. I mean, i got to tell you, if folks bust in right now and they arrest me, there's one word on my mouth that's going to be, why? They take me before a judge, and the judge begins to convict me and say, we're going to kill you the old-fashioned way, all right? I would ask, why? 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 I want to know. I demand to know, what has Jesus done that has caused such an offense? First, we would see to the Jews, and then ultimately, he's offensive to the Romans. What is the threat of Jesus? He seems to be, they would say, a, a radically dangerous individual. You get that? They, 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 the way they treat him, we said last week, they're showing up with 400 to 600 soldiers with weapons. They think Jesus is a threat. He's never done anything, by the way, never done anything that has really classified him as a dangerous person. There was that whole temple incident where he turned over the tables. But that's just a very brief moment in 33 years of his life on earth. Why are they threatened by Jesus? Now, walk with me if you don't mind. If you have this, let's begin with the Jewish trials. And I want you to see that there are actually six trials that Jesus goes through, most of them being in darkness. All right? We don't mean spiritual darkness like in sin. We mean it's literally dark outside when Jesus is drug off, he's arrested, and he's taken through these trials. So he's arrested somewhere around 1 in the morning. And if you're on where it says the Jewish trials, he's going to go through three Jewish trials. And what I've included for you is uh, just a little chart here. All right? 
And I hope that you would take this and you would have this, and maybe as you prepare your heart for Easter, this could be another tool for you. But I want to definitely show you this picture, how it all overlaps and shows us the beautiful picture of what Jesus has done. The, the Scripture tells us this. It's Friday morning. All right? If you're comfortable with that, I'm going to call 1.30 morning. Okay? 1.30 in the morning, and then they take Jesus, the first stop that they take Jesus to, the Scripture tells us in John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, tells us this. If you would read, since you're in John chapter 18, let's begin in verse 12. All right? The Scripture tells us in verse 12, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus, and they bound him. That indicates that he's a threat. They tie him up. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. If you see verse 14, can I just, uh, just kind of point you back to John 11 for a second and tell you this, Caiaphas has already made a declaration that one man needs to die for the Jews. What that basically means is this. Before they try Jesus, they've already condemned Jesus. Before they even get started, before they arrested him, basically here's how this works out. Hey, let's kill Jesus. You know what we need to do first? Let's arrest him. And then let's beat him. And then let's kill him. It's already been decided. Can you want, you want to talk about with me an unfair trial? When you're already condemned before you're arrested, that's rough for us. Jesus, it's been told us here, John records, John 18, we read there, verse 14, Jesus has already been condemned. They come and they arrest him, and they take him to Annas. Annas is the father-in-law, the scripture tells us, you see there, of Caiaphas, so that means technically he holds no Jewish position at all. He should not legally, by the Jews' own law, shouldn't even be in the conversation. There's no reason, no legal standing for them in any kind of way, by their own law, for them to arrest a prisoner and take a prisoner to Annas' house. No reason to do that. No reason to do that. This is exactly their first step because, folks, this is, we would see it clearly, a political move. Annas has no title but Annas holds all the power because he is seen and has been seen for the past six years, actually. He has held that role of high priest, so he is seen as the one who can influence the people with religion. He would say, I'm the high priest, and I'm called by God, so therefore whatever I say is law, this man, Jesus, deserves to die. That's basically what Jesus is walking into. Now, that's not how trial's supposed to work. So I included a couple of things for you here as we walk across this just quickly. Um, the questions that Jesus has asked. Uh, Annas asked him, he says, hey, who are your disciples? Who are these guys that you're leading, right? None of them are impressive guys, so none of them are really threats. Simon the Zealot perhaps is the biggest threat, so that's one guy. But we see that he's, again, part of that band that runs away. So he questions Jesus about his disciples, and then also he asks Jesus what he's been teaching. Jesus gives a very clear response if you study the passage, and he'll say this, everything I was teaching, I was teaching publicly. 
There's no reason for you to think that there's been secret meetings, that there's been some kind of conspiracy formed against the Jewish people. That's not what's happened at all. Jesus basically clearly says, you couldn't. This gets him in trouble. He means it respectfully, not with how that I would say it. But Jesus basically says this, you guys could have come heard me preach anytime. And you would hear what I was preaching. And you can make up, a, you make up your mind, make a decision about if my teaching was wrong or not. Basically, what we're doing here, folks, is with Annas, this is a formality. Jesus has already been condemned to death. And now they're trying to maneuver people in order to see God from a distorted perspective and justify their desires to kill Jesus. You remember that we said last week as well, Jesus himself tells his disciples at any moment he can summon 12 legions of angels if you want to do that math that's more than 400 soldiers that's more than 600 soldiers he can summon with a snap of his finger 12 legions of angels jesus instead allows himself to be bound he's taken to annas's house he's asked questions that have obvious non-secretive answers here's how annas responds because of the way jesus speaks to annas because of his pointed, clear answer to his questions, the officer standing near Jesus strikes him in the face. Annas then sends him and says, this guy's definitely guilty. You saw that, right? Annas determines here, Jesus is definitely guilty, deserving death. Did you catch that? I kind of missed that myself when I read the text. Annas has already determined before Jesus arrives that Jesus is guilty. Now they're trying to use the law so that the law will be distorted, giving a distorted view of God, and that would condemn Jesus. He goes then to Caiaphas. He's sent to Caiaphas, and we would understand geographically, if you're interested in this, and, uh, and perhaps you are, Annas and Caiaphas, some think, even live side by side, right? Live side by side. Caiaphas is the current high priest, so still between these hours of 1.30 to 5, 5 in the morning, at some point during that, Jesus comes before Caiaphas. They begin to bring two questions before Jesus, you'll see. They said, hey, um, some people heard you say that you were going to destroy the temple. That is a law no-no. That is a Jewish law, don't touch our temple because God gave us this. All right? Of course, that's not what Jesus said, so he, uh, he, he tries to respond to that uh, without going into a lot of detail. And then also they ask, are you the Christ? And so we see that there's some laws that they break, their own laws. That's in the middle column there for you. But Jesus tells them that he basically is I am. He is I am. The temple officers then, because of Jesus' statements, and get what he says, Jesus, are you the Christ? And he comes back with, uh-huh. And so because of that, these royal, excuse me, the, these religious officers, they begin to spit on Jesus, they cover his head, and they walk around him in a circle and begin to punch him in the face and say, prophesy who hit you if you're a prophet. Jesus at any moment can call 12 legions of angels. He takes it. Caiaphas then determines that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. He has claimed to be God, and because he's claimed to be God, 
he must be killed. Now, you'll see, again, middle column there, I included for you, just interesting thought for you, is that the way that the Jewish law says to kill someone claiming to be God is to stone them. And so I get to dig into this, folks, because it, it, it baffles my mind. Does Caiaphas and Annas, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, do they want Jesus to be killed? No. Technically not. They want him to be humiliated. They want him to be marked as a liar, as a traitor against the Jewish people, as a sinner. There is a vicious burning inside of their hearts of anger towards Jesus. Why? Why? So Caiaphas has this stage set, and he says, I know he's already guilty. John 11, I proclaimed him guilty. Sent him to Annas. Annas proclaimed him guilty. Now I'm going to say he's guilty. And we've yet to see Jesus lie, be deceitful in any kind of way, do anything wrong. He's not been vicious towards anyone. He's not tried to lead a revolt in any kind of way. And these Jewish leaders repeatedly are in agreement. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. Let's kill him with stoning. No, 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 no. That's what our law says. Let's break our own law. And let's let him be crucified so that he is humiliated and disgraced. Killing him is not enough for them. Why? So he moves then from Caiaphas to a gathering of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin around 5 a.m. This is going to be all of the Pharisees together. So this is the high priest with all of the Pharisees together. And they ask these questions. If you are the Christ, tell us. Are you the Son of God? Very pointed questions. And the, the Scripture does not really indicate that Jesus responds. It's almost like, hey, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of talking about this. I'm tired of trying to get through to you about who I am. You're asking me, you'll see the same question over and over and over again. So they decide, because of his silence, that he deserves to die. I mean, you know, hey, listen, when you say something... You deserve to die. When you don't say anything, you deserve to die. When you obey the Old Testament law, you deserve to die. Jesus can't win. He can't win. So the Jews predetermined that he should be crucified, arrested him, went him went, uh, led him through quickly three trials, and you'll see technically, definitely two of those were illegal. The Jewish law, in fact, you'll see, will instruct the Jewish people, try to save a life. Try to save a life. But instead, what we find is they have hatred towards Jesus and they want to kill him and are just seeking an avenue to do that. Do you know why? Why do they have this feeling towards Jesus in their hearts? Now, Interwoven with this, especially in the book of John, if you'll turn to page 2 here, interwoven within this, we find also Peter's denial. Now, Peter, I find it very interesting. Peter is the leader of the disciples in every text that we find in the Gospels. Peter is the guy that's leading, that's heading up the disciples, that's saying, hey, guys, let's go and do this. He's not always right. He doesn't always say the brightest things. He doesn't always do the brightest things, as we saw last week, surrounded by 400 men with weapons. He has a two-foot sword, so he swoops it out, starts trying to cut a guy's head off. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed, 
But man, he's devout. I mean, he's at least dedicated to the cause of Jesus. He's the one that says to Jesus, when Jesus tells him that he's going to die, Peter says, no, we're not going to let that happen. I won't let that happen, Jesus. And in fact, I'll go to, what does he say? I'll go to death with you. So interwoven within John's gospel, we see, and again, looking at all four gospels together, what we'd find here is this. Jesus is on trial at Annas and then Caiaphas, and then he's also sent to the Sanhedrin. Well, while that's happening, happening in the courtyard next to Annas' house, this is where Peter is. Peter, because of, I believe, the help of the apostle John, they're able to sneak in to the, to the courtyard. They're close by to where Jesus is being tried. And the scripture tells us first here that Peter, as he walks in the door, the servant girl who opens the door, the, the door lady, I guess would be the technical term for her, she says, hey, Peter, you're not one of Jesus' disciples, are you? He immediately responds, I am not. Absolutely not. Forget it. I'll put a little emphasis there. So Peter comes in. He's denied Jesus once. He begins to stand around a fire there. Around this fire, we understand the Scripture paints this picture that there are people who just came to arrest Jesus. And so Peter's standing there. I would imagine maybe a little slumped down. Maybe he's got his head down a little bit. But he's warming himself by the fire. And then people begin to recognize Peter. And they begin to say things posed in a negative sense in the Greek. But they say, uh, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Peter immediately comes back again. No, 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 not me. I am not. I am not. And so then Peter has this specific person. This is identified, I believe, uh, specifically in the Gospel of John, that there is this relative of Malchus. Malchus was actually the guy who Peter cut off his ear just a little while ago. So the relative, for some reason, I mean, you can imagine if you're at a family reunion and somebody comes in, cuts off one of your relative's ears, you might recognize that person if you saw him an hour later. I don't know. So this person recognizes Peter, and he basically says this, I saw you in the garden with Jesus. You're one of his disciples. This is where the Scripture indicates for us Peter's third denial, and Peter says, and the Scripture indicates that he curses and says, I definitely am not a follower of Jesus what happened to Peter? How did he go so quickly from, I will go with you to the death. I will never let harm come to you. I will never leave you. I will never, never turn my back on you, Jesus. And then we're talking about two hours later, just bam, bam, bam. Don't know you. Don't know you. Don't know you. I'm in it. I don't know you at all. I don't know you. What happened? Peter, that he became so uncomfortable with who Jesus was and being partnered in any kind of relational way with Jesus. Now, third part here then, we, we catch back up with Jesus and we see that Jesus goes through his three Jewish trials on the front page, but now the next page, page three, there's three Roman trials. We need to do just a little bit of background to understand this. The Jews are a conquered people by the government of Rome, and so Rome will not allow any of their conquered people to take life. You cannot kill another Jew as long as that Jew is underneath Roman rule because it makes Rome look bad. 
It embarrasses Rome. It makes it seem like Rome can't protect the people that they conquer, and Rome can't protect their citizens. So the concept here is this. The Jews have run Jesus through the night, which is illegal. They've run Jesus through the night, broken many, many Jewish laws, and they bring Jesus then now, and they say, we accused him of blasphemy, we accused him of blasphemy, we accused him of blasphemy, and we have determined that he has claimed to clearly be God. The Romans, you should know, don't care at all. Their God is Caesar. So only Caesar is to be recognized by a Roman as God. If you don't recognize Caesar as God, then the Roman government would take your life quickly. So the idea for us here is this. The Jews could stone Jesus by their law, but now they've got to get permission, and they've got to go to the boss. So they take Jesus then to Pilate, the governor, the governor Pilate, he's here. This is getting around, you'll see, 6 a.m., 7 a.m., somewhere between that time, all right? And they accuse Jesus here of encouraging people not to give to Caesar. They have absolutely no testimony of that, no proof of that whatsoever. So Pilate takes Jesus, we understand, into his quarters. The Jews, it being Passover, will not enter into Pilate's quarters, but we do have a glimpse of what the kind of questions Pilate asked him. So Pilate and Jesus began to engage in some sort of conversation where Pilate is trying to determine his crime. You'll see here, the scripture indicates Pilate comes out and he announces to the crowd, I find no crime in him. Let's go home, folks. We're done. That should wrap it up. But the Jewish leaders began to insist that Pilate not just allow them to stone Jesus, but they want Jesus to be crucified now by Rome. Kind of looks like this. They're mad at Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. But they sure would look bad if they did. So they're trying to manipulate the situation so that actually Rome will kill Jesus. And that way, folks, if you're not tracking with me here, that way they can do whatever they want to with Jesus and not feel guilty about it. And write it off as, well, that Jesus, Rome did that to him. Pilate has this idea. They refer to Jesus in some point in this conversation. Some point in this conversation, perhaps, with Jesus is, becomes known or uh, reminded of, uh, to Pilate that Jesus is from Galilee. That's the northern region that's above Judea. If you're looking at a map there in the back of your book of maps. And so Pilate has this idea, I'm going to send him to Herod, and that way I won't feel so guilty about killing Jesus. I'll let Herod pass the word to kill Jesus. Herod is um, a unique, historically, he's a unique character. Luke 23, 6 through 12 tells us that Herod begins to interrogate Jesus. Herod, in fact, wanted to see Jesus. Herod was anxious to see Jesus because very simply, he just wanted Jesus to do a miracle. He wanted Jesus to dance like a puppet on a string for him. Jesus, the, the scripture indicates that he doesn't respond to him in any kind of way. This angers Herod. So they begin to mock Jesus. He and his soldiers begin to mock Jesus. And then they send Jesus back to Pilate. So these guys, the scripture tells us, Pilate and Herod 
actually, who are usually against one another, unite forces to keep the peace with the Jews. He comes back to Pilate for the second meeting, and if you're tracking, we're almost at the end here. Why, what evil has he done, is the question that Pilate asks. The Jewish leaders begin to stir the crowd up by this point. It's getting to be close to the Passover celebration. We need to kill this guy if we're going to kill him, is their basic idea. So they begin to stir the crowd up, and the crowd begins to chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate has the idea, as was the custom, to release Barabbas, who is the leader of an insurrection. Some believe possibly a murderer. And the crowd says, we want the insurrection leader. We want the murderer. But we want you to crucify Jesus. Why? I mean, really, what is their motivation? What is the threat that Jesus is posing to first these Jewish people, but really their Jewish leaders, even to Pilate or to Herod? What problem is Jesus causing these folks where they put him through such unfair treatment and eventually begin to chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Wouldn't it be enough to be flogged, scourged, the Bible says? This is where they take a long whip that has multiple leather straps. They tie pieces of perhaps glass or bone or rock in the end of it. They strip Jesus, and we see that it's, it's actually a little, a little more PG than, than what really happened. They strip Jesus completely naked, and they tie him up with his back exposed, and they whip him with this, and whip him and whip him and whip him until where he's no longer able to be recognized as a human being. Why would they hate him so much? Why are they so threatened by him? The Roman soldiers, who again don't care anything about who Jesus is, not in any kind of way, they dress him in royal robes and they create, they fashion for him a crown of thorns. They seem to hate this man. Do you know why? It baffles my mind. I know Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but when we get into the legalities of actually how they got to the point of crucifying him, I mean, you're thinking about a couple of hours earlier, he's eating supper with his disciples. Now he's been beaten beyond recognition. We haven't gotten to the cross yet, but he's been beaten beyond recognition. He's had the crown of thorns pressed into his head. He's had his disciples abandon him, and some of them have gotten courage and come back, and now he's hated by the Jewish leaders. He's hated by Annas. He's hated by Caiaphas. He's hated by the Sanhedrin. He's now put before Pilate. Pilate's scared of him, but Pilate won't show that fear. He's put before Herod, and Herod treats him like a clown, like a joke. He's brought back before Pilate, and Pilate's wrestling with a way out of this. Why do these people despise Jesus so much? So as I think about that, your last page here, just some conclusions that I would offer. And I'm thinking about, quickly here, the threat of Jesus. Here's what I see, number one, with the Jewish people, specifically the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders want religion by the law. Now, I know that sounds weird for us, but the Pharisees tell us, uh, the, uh, history tells us that the Pharisees would actually create additional laws 
in addition to what the Bible actually says in the Old Testament and the Torah, they would add hundreds and hundreds of laws to where they would actually be able to tell you, hey, if you want to be right in God's eyes, you can't take a certain number of steps on the Sabbath. You can if you see somebody hurting. If you see someone has their mule stuck in the mud on the Sabbath, you cannot help them because that would be considering breaking the law. I believe that the Jews are threatened by Jesus because, folks, we're more comfortable when we have a list of rules that will tell us if we're good or not. We're more comfortable if we have a list of things to do or maybe even a list of things not to do. And if you and I can just look at that list and we can just watch that list and kind of check that I didn't do that. Not, and then we can begin to compare our list of when these be cool to somebody else's list and say, oh, well, I, you know, I have all these check marks where I didn't do any of these things, but this person, I know they did. And now we feel better about ourselves because then we can measure our spirituality, our relationship, our knowledge, our awareness, our connection with God then is easily maintained by us when we have just a set list of rules and we can just follow this day after day, day after, well, I didn't do so great today, so I'll do better tomorrow. I'll do better tomorrow. You see, they want to be saved by the law. And the threat that Jesus poses both to the Jewish people and I would say now today to me and to us as a congregation, sometimes we want to keep score spiritually. And that allows us to validate ourselves in God's eyes. Look, look how many times this past year I came to church. Look how many times I gave money. Look how much money I gave. Wow, look at how many good deeds I did. And then also, let me tell you, I'm not doing this as much as I used to. I'm still doing it some, but I'm not doing this as much as I used to. I'll do that. Well, maybe I do that a lot still. But we like to be able to track clearly where we are with God. That's what the law does. This is why Paul writes in Romans, and you'll see in Galatians as well, Paul identifies this. The law is not given to save you. The law is given to make you aware of your sin. And the easiest way that I can explain this, again, that's why a speed limit 25 sign exists. You know, on a straightaway, you say, oh, wonder what the speed limit is here. We want to see law clear for us because it makes us feel good about ourselves when we just drive 35. And we say things, do we not? Well, it's only 10 miles over the speed limit. And can I share with you, there are many people who want to live their Christian life this way where they're saying, hey, look at me. Look at the good that I did. Look at how many things I did that were good. Don't look at my bad, but look at my good things. And look how good that is. Look, look, I've got a good presentation of being a person that has it together spiritually. And can I share with you, it's a scary thought for me. Jesus blows that out of the water. And Jesus says this, you are lost in your sin, unable to save yourself, 
And even in your best efforts to do right things, to please God, are counted, Isaiah says, as filthy rags to him. There is nothing in this world, in your strength, in your effort, that you can do all by yourself that will earn you relationship with God. There's only one thing that earns you relationship with God. Only one thing that can happen. That's if God were to come down to you in the form of man and he were willing, even though he could snap his fingers and to see deliverance come to him, get him out of this junk, this unfair mistreatment. He endured it for you. So you could be free from this idea. Free from this idea. Oh well, you know, uh, pastor didn't wear a tie again today. What, how many is that? How many days is that? How many Sundays in a row? Listen, we can be free from that. We can be free from that. That we would not be governed by our sin, but we would be in relationship with Jesus. And that's what allows us to live. Now, speaking of that, second thing quickly is Peter's problem. What threat did Peter see in Jesus? Because Peter knew him better than the Jewish leaders. Peter walked with him. Peter knew what was going on. But when push came to shove, when Peter was called on the carpet, Peter said, I'm, I, I, just, I don't even know who this guy is. I have no idea. Many would say that Peter is scared of dying. If you read the Gospels, I would debate that. Peter doesn't really think about dying very much, Right? When Jesus comes walking on the water in the storm, Peter's like, I'll get out. That's no problem whatsoever. Peter is not one that seems to be constantly afraid to die. I think what happens with Peter's denials, honestly, is that it's becoming real that Jesus is asking Peter to live. And what I'm afraid of for us spiritually is that many of us are in love with the idea that one day, whenever we die, many years from now, we will go to be in eternity with God. And we should be in love with that idea. But can I tell you that more so than that, more than Jesus calling you to die and go to heaven, He's calling you to live today for Him. He's asking you to claim Him now in your workplace, now in your home, now in your community. He wants you to choose to be identified as one of His. And one of the biggest fears for me, pray for me, because my biggest fear is that people would see in me a Bible teacher or a pastor and not see Jesus. You see, I don't want something etched into my tombstone he was a great bible teacher or adequate bible teacher or he was a so-so pastor i don't want that stuff can i say i want people to see inside of me that my life is about jesus today and folks that's going to take relational work where we're going to have to say listen people will definitely identify you as being one a member at friendship baptist church and we claim you that's great we're glad you're here that's wonderful but two, we're also quick to be claimed as being a Christian. And can I share with you, my concern is that in our culture, the term Christian no longer has a biblical meaning. 
We're saying, hey, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, wouldn't you like to be a Christian too? And we're doing this everywhere that we're going. We'll do this, hey, listen, we'll do this at the hospital, and we'll do this on Sunday, definitely at church, and we'll do this in our yard. If we're called to account in our yard, well, then, well I'm a Christian. I go to Friendship Baptist Church. You going to Friendship Baptist Church, by the way, doesn't make you a Christian. And with all due respect, it's my burden. I want to be identified as a Christ follower. You say, well, that's what Christian means. That's not how others around us tend to identify it. I'm a Christ follower. My life is lived for Jesus. Is that where your heart is? Man, that's where I want my heart to be. I see Peter. And it's not condemnation. We're not judging him. But I'm saying to you this. The concept for us is this. We are chained to this idea that people see us in a certain way. That people recognize us in a certain way. That people value us in a certain way. And I want to tell you, as long as they're looking at us and we're concerned about them seeing us, they're not able to see the difference Jesus Christ makes in our lives. Aren't you one of his? Didn't I see you? taking a stand with him? Didn't I see you living even after he was crucified and buried and some say arose? Didn't I see you, Peter, standing up there as a fisherman and they're recognizing you as an untrained and unschooled man? Didn't I see you proclaiming Jesus Christ in an insufficient way such that fishermen can't do it that way unless there's a change inside of them? That's Peter. So I think that Peter's threatened by this idea of living for Jesus. Living for him. I think he doesn't care at all about dying. He's not afraid to die. A dude that was afraid to die, by the way, is not going to warm his hands around the fire of his captors. That's just stupid. Peter says... I want to see how this Jesus stuff plays out. He's made some bold claims. I'll run away there for a second, but I'm coming back. I'm not perfect, but here I am. And I want to live for him. I want to live for him. I'm scared. What if they identify me as being more than what someone else is or more than what's expected? Listen, Peter says, here I am. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And right here, folks, from his last denial of Jesus, that, crop, that cock crows. And he becomes the fire of the Holy Spirit living inside of him that's going to ignite the church movement. Third then is this, and we're finished. What about the Romans? The Romans have this same story, I think, that we do. They don't appreciate Jesus. Because they want to be Lord over the Lord. They want to be in charge. They want to be the ones that say, well, what is truth? That's what Pilate asked him. Because Pilate, can you get this, thinks he's an authority over Jesus. That's where Herod has his downfall. Herod says, do a miracle. Do a miracle. Do a miracle. You won't do a miracle? Well, I'm going to mock you and make fun of you. And can I tell you, Jesus came to be Lord over our lives. Have you contemplated what that means? 
Would you think about that with me for a second? Because I've got to tell you, sometimes I'm guilty of looking at Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, this is what I need you to do, and here's what I need you to do it by, and I need you to get on it pretty fast, and it needs to be done well because I'm waiting on you. Come on. And that's our prayer life. Jesus comes and he says, I want to free you from that. And here's the song the praise team just sang. Man, what a wonderful selection. Wonderful selection of worship songs this morning. He gives and takes away. And as my Lord sees fit to take away from me, and as my Lord sees fit to me, blessed be His name. Blessed be His name. When He sees fit to allow struggle to come into my life. Can you say that with me? Because my Lord knows what's best for me. My Lord knows the refining fire that I need to endure with His help and His strength. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I want to invite, and this is going to throw them for a curve, all right? I was talking about seeing cold sweat last week. I'd like to invite our praise team to come back. I'm not sure what happens next. I know it's an invitation time, but I'm going to invite our praise team to come on back. And I want to ask you, we want to do Chain Breaker again. Can we do that? Todd, is that all right? Can we do that? You guys remember the words? Yeah? So we want to do Chain Breaker again, all right? And I want you to think about the, the, the words to this song. I think that we're in chains, folks, if we're not careful. I understand what the Scripture says. Scripture says that you, as a sinner, are chained to the law. And you think that the law can save you. You need to break that chain. We think we're chained to the idea of Christianity is just about life after death. We've got to break that idea. We've got to be free from that so that we can be alive today and live life to the fullest. We think that Christianity is about sometimes, we fall into this trap, that Christianity it's about this concept of God showing up and doing what I told him to do when I told him to do it. And folks, we need to be set free from that. This is why Jesus never snapped his fingers to call those legions of angels to deliver him. He endures this for your freedom. Would you stand to your feet and would you worship with us?